Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. As always, we're grateful to have it in our language. But also, as always, we need you to light this text up to us. We don't want to just learn this text. We want to live this text. We want to be those who bless you, who say a good word to you as we consider the good that you have done for us in Christ. Today, would you help us to ponder anew, we've, we've sung, what the Almighty can do. Can you help us to consider afresh your mercy? That our salvation is your mercy, based on your mercy, not, not on our merit. Father, would you help us to consider the phrase, you have caused us to be born again. We have not caused that. You of your own accord and great power. And you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. A hope that we've just sung is unwavering. No matter our circumstances, no matter the trials, no matter the difficulties. Because our hope is grounded, as this text says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That what you have done for Jesus, you will do for us. That he is the first fruits. And as we've just sung, that it is a foretaste of our deliverance. Father, that you have granted an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that you keep it. But most importantly, Father, that you keep us. That our faith is because of your great power. The reason any of us will be in heaven will not be primarily because of our faithfulness, but because of yours. Because of your commitment, because of your sustaining. And so, Father, I, I don't know if we've blessed you this week. I don't know if this morning we've come in here and we want to bless you. And so I pray that you would incline our hearts to your word, that we would see the truth that you breathed out as Peter was writing to say a good word about all the good that you've done to we who readily know how bad we are who readily know we deserve no salvation and so Father may you get all the credit and the glory as we come to our text today and as we come to this time of the word I pray for Parkway Baptist Father I pray as they continue their search process, as they go through things for pastors, I just pray you would meet with them in their service today. I pray you a grant of shepherd who loves you, loves your word, will love your people. So meet us now in your word here, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If it's your first Sunday with us, we walk through Bible books because we believe nothing is better for God's people than God's Word. And, and last week we started our study in First Peter with just the first two verses, uh, one and two. And today we're going to advance m much further. We're going to take on three verses. Uh, we're going to examine three, four, and five. And 
And as we open uh, this study in First Peter, we do so because it's so packed and weighty. We want to take our time, and we don't want to miss any of the truth that God has given for us. I want you to hold your place and turn uh, in First Peter. I want you to turn to the book of Job for a moment as we start our time together. And I do did want to point out, if you haven't seen Jake Metcalf, he's right over here to my right. Stand up for one moment, Jake. Jake is going to be my stunt double today for any sermons we... We got the same uniform, and so it's good to know that sizes come in Jake's size and others. So I'm pumped that I wear the same thing as triathletes. I feel really excited about that and grateful. So if, you, if you've been in church, this probably will not be the, the first time you've encountered the story of Job. But what I pray is that God will use it to help us at least in in this opening part, uh, to counter it afresh. Beginning in verse 1 of Job, this is what's recorded. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. But if you skip down to verse 13, here's what it says. Now, there was a day. Job had a day, didn't he? Those of us who know what's coming. There was a day. And it says that on this particular day, he woke up and Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. And, and it was a day that seemed like any other because his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. They would rotate among the seven brothers and, and share feasts. And of course, Job would be concerned about their holiness and would offer sacrifices on, on their behalf. But it was a day that started like any other typical day for Job. But then verse 14 says, there came a messenger to Job. And he says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So as Job's going through this typical day, he gets a message. And no email, no Twitter, no It means there's a servant who's run. As a matter of fact, uh, the reason he's there is he's the only one that's been left alive in this raid. And so Job finds out that though he he had donkeys and oxen, they're all gone. This group has, has taken them. And then as it's recorded, it goes on to say in verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another. So this messenger is still telling Job the facts and Job can see another messenger coming on the horizon. There's someone running toward him. And he says, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. So as 7,000 sheep are out feeding in a typical morning, all of a sudden they're consumed from fire from heaven he says from God and not only were the sheep consumed but all of the servants who were working and and there's one who has escaped to tell and while he's still talking Job can see on the horizon it says in verse 17 while he was still speaking there came another Job 
If you're Job, you're, you're trying to catch your breath for a moment. You're trying to figure out what, what's happening. And it says, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then it says, while he was still speaking. So these messengers are barely able to even get their message out. They, they can't. It's while they're speaking and delivering these messages of doom, he sees another one coming on the horizon. And this one begins, and he says, your sons and daughters. And if I were Job, that's where I would say, stop. Stop. Don't say what you're going to say. Because up to this point, everything he's heard has been wiped out. And that messenger out of breath, coming in, he says, your sons and your daughters. And if I were Job, I would have been like, no. He goes on and he says, they were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they're dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. And you could take the sheep and you could take the oxen but don't take the kids. And if you're going to take the kids you're going to take all ten at the same time. There's a family buried here in Tupelo, all in a mass grave. Because one night in a tornado, they were literally all wiped out together. Job woke up and got out of bed, and there was no warning. There was nothing on the news feed that says there's rumblings among the Chaldeans or the Sabians. There was no warnings of wind, strong winds that would be coming along. And what I'm always intrigued by is verse 20. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And all of that makes sense to me. But it's the last phrase that always convicts me because it says, And worshiped. So he tore his robe, shaved his head, these signs of grief falling on the ground. But then he worshiped and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This man lost everything in a moment except for the wife who will counsel him to curse God and die. She survived. What a blessing. And his response to, to all of this is worship, that his perspective through the pain is still praise. His perspective is still praise. I want you to, to go back to First Peter now. And while you, you're turning there, I want to ask you two very important questions. The first one is this. 
when we experience days of difficulty, devastation, disappointment, and even death of those closest to us, are those same days also full of devotion and doxology? So in the days that are full of difficulty and devastation and disappointment and even death, are they also days that are full of devotion and doxology? The second question, through the tears, can we only see the trials or can we see God's triumph in Christ? So when we're in the midst of the struggles and the suffering and the storms, as all we see the trial, as we, as we weep, I don't know how Job wouldn't weep on this day, and certainly not for oxen, certainly not for camels. But can we, through the tears, see also Christ's triumph? We sang a song last week, and we sing it every so often of, I'm singing in the victory, the victory of the cross, resting in the shadow of your redeeming love. I'm standing on the promise, the promise of new life, because I'm yours forever, and Jesus, you are mine. There's no one like you, God, love immeasurable and strong. There's no one like you, God, so lead this heart to sing in all. Uh, does this describe us in the days of difficulty that we would say, I'm singing in the victory, in the days of suffering, in the days of disappointment? I would just ask, maybe last week wasn't full of difficulty or devastation. Were your days still marked by singing in the victory? Were you standing on the promises of new life? Was, was your heart led to sing in awe in any way to God? Were you certain that you were Christ's forever and he is yours? That There's no doubt about that in your journey. And as we continue our study in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to people who are experiencing problems. They are sojourners who are suffering. And he wants them to become sojourners who sing even though they suffer. Where we'll see as this story plays out uh, by March, we'll get to chapter 2, and, and as we, we'll see in here that uh, Christian slaves were being treated unfairly by their masters, even though they'd done no wrong. Your boss ever made it difficult at work, even though you'd done all the right things? Then, that sometimes you, you've done all the right things, and it's, it's not praised, there's problems still. Christian wives were being mistreated by their unbelieving husbands. Many of the believers had lost former friends who were now slandering them. And some that Peter's writing to were being threatened and, and even facing martyrdom. And as he begins, he begins with these words in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with praise. He's, he's writing to call them to hope through the hurt. That there is hope through the hurt. And, and not just to endure the evil day, but to do it with joy. That we would take joy in, in God. And so when our life is in jeopardy, or our job, or our marriage, or our health, do we rise up with joy and bless God? Do we rise up and we say a good word about God? Of course, Peter's focus is not on their trials, but Christ's triumph and he's wanting them to sing and, and what is it that he's going to use to help them sing well already you, you should have seen in the first five verses here he will use doctrine not for their division as he uses phrases such as election or, or foreknowledge he, he is not using doctrine for division or even discussion but to fuel devotion in the midst of difficulty that he's fueling their praise with this 
And I love that he's not just offering a systematic theology. He's not being topical here on, well, let's talk about regeneration today. He's not being topical. All of the theology is for the purpose of doxology. And here's what he knows and what you and I should consider. He knows that a God-centered perspective crushes self-centered pity. That a God-centered perspective crushes self-centered pity and compels God-centered praise. That's what he knows. That's what he's doing. That a God-centered perspective will always crush self-pity. Because later on in 1 Peter, he writes and he says, you know, the same things that are happening to you are happening to people all around the world. When we are diagnosed with a difficult disease, probably somewhere in the world, someone else has been diagnosed with that same disease that day. When we lose our job somewhere else in the world, someone has lost that job. But we turn in, we we turn in, and Peter's calling us to serve others and to turn out, and and not just out, but to, to turn upward toward God. And when we suffer as sojourners, we can praise God because of his protection and provision. So I've put the passage in the sense at the top of your notes. You should have received some notes as you walked in. It just says this. No matter our circumstances as believers, worship is compelled as we set our eyes on God's triumph in Christ rather than our trials. That we can't help but worship. Two main truths for you to consider today. The first one is this. No matter our predicament or our problems, God is worthy of all our praise. So Peter begins and he just says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just worshiping. The word blessed there is where we get our word eulogy. The E and the U mean you and the the last part of that mean word. And so it's why at a funeral someone's going to say a good word about the deceased if they can. I'd encourage you to live in such a way that they can. Especially for the pastor who's going to preach it. We appreciate those things. When, when all you can say is Christ's story, those are very difficult sermons. And so I would encourage you to live in such a way that you can say a good word. And here he's saying, say a good word about God. Let me just ask you then a question. What good words did you say to God or about God this week? What times in your journey did you just bless God? You just said a good word. Or in a conversation with someone, you said, hey, let me tell you this about God. Let me tell you about this good thing about God. I want, I want you to consider this. That's why we started uh, uh, there with Psalm 97.1. Here's a good word about God. He reigns over the nations. And so what does that look like in your life? Did you say any good words to God? Did you say them about him to others? When is the last time you worship God? Not because it's commanded, but because you were compelled. Not because it was required, but because you couldn't resist you couldn't hold it in. You, you had to express the culmination of that joy that flowed out in praise. You, you couldn't have held it in if you wanted. Another has said, worship is when the mind apprehends great truth about God and the heart kicks in with deep feelings of brokenness or wonder and gladness and admiration and gratitude and the mouth says something like, praise you, God. Praise you, God. Uh, in, in this text, it is important to note, Peter is not commanding worship here. He's not saying, hey, do this. He's, he's not demanding it. He's demonstrating it. As a matter of fact, he's declaring these things about God. So he's not commanding. He's considering the good things that God has done. And, and that's what's fueling his praise. So he's not exhorting. He's exalting. And, and for us, worship is compelled when the gospel is considered. I tell you all the time that if we're going to love God passionately and others rightly, we must consider the cross constantly. 
Because when I consider the cross constantly, loving God passionately isn't a problem. When I consider the cross, serving others and putting their needs above mine isn't a problem. So if we're going to love God passionately and others rightly, then we must consider the cross constantly. But if you go day after day and you never consider the cross, I'm certain you're not blessing God. You're not being compelled to praise. There's nothing fueling that. My lawnmower won't run without gas in it. Believe me, I try all the time. It has to have fuel to fire it, to make it go. And in the same way, this is what I love about God. God doesn't expect empty ritual. He doesn't expect us to come in here just out of obligation. What he longs for is us to consider the good that he's done for us. And, and though if he never did any good for us, he's still worthy of all praise. But what we should marvel at is that he has and continues to do good to we who are so bad. And, and we're compelled then, as we consider these truths, to worship him. And you see it throughout the New Testament. This is what Ephesians 1 is about. Paul starts in the same way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then he begins to list them. Adoption and mercy and love and redemption and forgiveness. And then he goes through being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he can't help it. He's just saying a good word about God as he considers all the good that God has done for us. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul is writing and he begins to, to tell Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. My man's just writing a letter and he moves right into worship. When's the last time that happened to you in a text? You're just texting your child, you're texting your spouse, and you just move right into, while I'm talking about Jesus, let me just tell you some things, and, and you, you let that amen sound. It's what we sing, let the amen raise from his people again. And so the question is, is that's what's flowing from us? Worship that is not just commanded, but compelled, and it's because we're considering what he's done for us in Christ. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the, what? Dead. How could we not? Well, here's what I love. So he's calling us to, to praise him, to that the worship here would, would f be flowing from us, that we would say a good word. And, and here's big truth number two from your text. Our praise is fueled by his provision. All God expects from us, he provides for us. This is incredible good news of the gospel that all he expects he provides for. So he provides fuel for that fire and for that faith. And then what Peter does is he just begins to list these in the statements that follow. So he says, bless God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to share with you. Here's what's fueling my praise today. That's what he's writing here. Here's what I want you to know. Here's why I'm doing that. And the first reason that he is praising God is because we praise God for his mercy. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So according to his great mercy, how many of you are grateful that God's actions and affections toward us are according to his mercy and not our merit? That it is, it is his decision. There's something in him that chooses to be gracious. And what we learn is that salvation is not because of us, it is really in spite of us. 
that he overcomes all of our rebellion. He, he absorbs it. And we cannot do anything to earn it. And we can't do anything to predispose God. Save me. Save me. I'll be worth it. Save me. There's nothing in us that causes him to be predisposed. This is according to his own counsel and his own decision and his own revelation to Moses. I'm merciful. The Lord, the Lord. Merciful and gracious, right? And so if we deserve salvation, it's actually not mercy. And there's nothing to it. And and what I want to give you good confidence is that our salvation is more about his faithfulness than ours. And our salvation is more about his commitment to us than, than our commitment to him. You know why that's important? Because in the trials, they may not represent Jesus well. That wife who's dealing with an unbelieving spouse, she may have some moments where she's not faithful and she just chooses sin and she lets him have it. She voices her frustration at this unbelieving spouse. The, the servant that's being mistreated may not nail it 100% of the time and, and turn that frustration to God. They may just turn it back on the master. And you know why this is a good word? Because even when they fail, he does not. That it's going to be to those who are walking through suffering that it is about his faithfulness, his commitment, his mercy, not your merit. You, you didn't earn it to begin, and, and so you're not going to blow it with your sin. How many of us need to hear that and be reminded that it wasn't something you did that attracted him to you in the first place? And, and, and now the, the people will always say, if you're going to grow a church, what you attract them with is what you have to keep doing. And, and so isn't it good to know that whatever it is we think we may have attracted God to us, that it wasn't about that? Because we may not always be able to do that. And, and I know that we would certainly not walk in complete obedience. And so he says, your salvation it's not about what you've earned. It is about his mercy. And so how can we not praise and say, God, thank you. It's not about me accomplishing. It's about what you have accomplished. And so he says our praise is fueled by his mercy. Second, that we praise God for causing us to be born again. He says his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Let this wash over you just for a moment. God causes us to have life that can never die. God causes us to have a life that can never die. He is the one who causes it, and therefore it's the one who causes it. He should get all the credit, and it's difficult. We, we live in a day where sometimes we want to compete for credit for our salvation. I put a quote there for, for you from Piper that just says, so when we're asked, how do you know it happened, the spiritual life, we tend to answer, oh, I did the things I was taught you must do to be born again. We don't say with reality and authenticity, because I'm alive to God. We infer our new birth from the things we did to cause it, not from the things that it causes in us. Well, why are you alive? Well, I prayed that prayer. I, I prayed that, I, I did. I prayed that prayer, right? If, when you were asked, how do you know you're alive spiritually, and you begin with I, you don't have an appreciation for what Peter's trying to do for you here today. He says it begins with God. God has caused this. God has worked in a way, and he goes on to say, it's not surprising then that a kind of Christianity grows up around that self-understanding that self-made Christians, uh, the self-made Christian existence, which does not explode with praise over our new birth and say with Peter, blessed be God, bless and praise and thank and love be God and God alone who by his great mercy calls us to be born again. I do want to pray if you read this phrase, he has caused us to be born again and your heart is cold and desensitized to that today, I would pray that even in this moment you would say, break my heart, Lord. Break my, Lord, break my heart afresh for what you've done. 
Why? Because we need spiritual life. John tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. So if we want to be with Christ, we want to be in heaven, you cannot do that unless we are born again. And, and we hear often in our day, well, I don't go to church, but I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. You hear this, right? How many of you have heard this? You should say to that, I say to you, sir, balderdash. That's what you should say the next time that someone says to you, I'm spiritual. You say, I say balderdash to that. Because John 3, 6, and 7 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The reality is, if Christ is not in us, there is no spiritual life in us. You can do all the crystal things you want, and you can do all the good things you want, but spiritual life comes only through God, that he grants through his spirit and through the resurrection of Christ. And so we need this And there's a particular way that he does it. I want you to skip down to verse 23. It says this in the same chapter. It says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so he causes us to be born again. And it's going to be through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is also through the living and abiding word of God. Why is this important? It's important as we think through our missions conference this weekend. It's important as we consider a word from last week, the elect. You need to understand why it's important. Because none of the elect will be in heaven who have not been evangelized. None of the elect are there just because God made them elect. What he uses to make them elect is the living word of God is they hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. That's why we believe with all our heart of going to the nations because there's only one way the nations are going to be made alive in Christ. Someone shows up to tell them what God has done for them in Christ. That's why we want to be a part of that and we hear and understand You should be grateful for several things if you have responded to the gospel. You should be grateful, first of all, there is a gospel. You should be grateful that that God provided an opportunity for you to hear that gospel. You should be grateful that, that while it was being shared with you, he was empowering the one sharing it, and he was empowering your listening, and you should be grateful that he was... He empowered your response to that gospel, that he has done these things to, to make us alive. And so Peter says, hey, bless God, because... This is according to his great mercy. He's given us life. And it's life that can never die, never be taken away. And it comes through hearing and understanding this word of God. He then continues that we praise God that he raises Jesus from the dead. We'll skip over living hope just for a moment and go to the end of this verse. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That the only reason that we can even have life is because God did not let death be the last word over Christ. The death of death is in the death of Christ, as John Owen says. And and God raised him. And as we studied this past Wednesday, that he set him above every authority and every rule and every name. And then gave him who has all authority, he gave him as the head of the church to be our leader. And Paul will write in 57 verses about the reality of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And it's what we sang that what a foretaste that Christ's resurrection, what we see in Christ's resurrection and the reality of that is this is how our life comes. 
If Christ had come and died but was not raised, there is no life to give us. There's only still death. So we praise God because he raised Christ from the dead. And in case that seems like common practice for you, because you did that at your work this past week, we should pause and let it just wash over us afresh through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, say the last word with me, dead. Never to be touched by death again. And it is through that life that he gives us life, which then says that we have been brought to a living hope. So right there toward the end of uh, verse 3, that we're born again to a living hope. God gives us a living hope. Many of you know uh, Senator John McCain passed away uh, yesterday afternoon about 4.30. His daughter Megan posted some of her thoughts online about his life and death. And she wrote a, a couple statements I want to share with you. She wrote, I, I was with my father at his end as he was with me at my beginning. In the 33 years we shared together, he raised me, taught me, corrected me, comforted me, encouraged me, and supported me in all things. He loved me and I love him. He taught me how to live. His love and his care, ever present, always unfailing, took me from a girl to a woman, and he showed me what it is to be a man. And then she says, your prayers for his soul and for our family are sincerely appreciated. And her last paragraph says, my father is gone, and I miss him as only an adoring daughter can. But in the loss and in the sorrow, take comfort in this, John McCain, hero of the Republic, and to his little girl, wakes today to something more glorious than anything on earth. Today the warrior enters his true and eternal life, greeted by those who've gone before him, rising to meet the author of all things. The dream is ended. This is the morning. She has hope. I don't know the state of John McCain's soul. I, I do not pretend to know that in any way. But as his daughter writes, his daughter writes with one that's hope. The question is, what gives us reason to have such hope? What gives us reason to, to think that he rises to meet the author of all things? What Peter is grounding our hope in, and by hope he means that full assurance, that strong confidence... He's grounding it in what God has done for us in the resurrection of Christ. That through his great mercy, he's given us the life that we need. And that life comes through the life that he gave Christ as he raised Christ from the dead. This is hope that death couldn't even stop this. And so this is a hope that's certain, not I kind of hope it works out like this. This is certain with confidence that we can know this. And what I put in your notes that living hope means that we can be certain our problems will never overcome God's promises to us so whatever they're facing in the rest of this letter they will not overcome because we have a living hope and it's not based on our circumstances it's based on our savior it's based on what god has done for us and that's why paul could write words of hope such as this to live as christ and to die as gain to depart and be with christ is far better to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then he just asks this hopeful question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. For you OCD people who were worried about, well, he left this phrase out, right? He says anything else that you can think of, none of that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's hope. That's confident hope. That no matter what you experience, that it's not going to separate you, including your own sin. That you've been granted life that can never be taken or thwarted. It's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he went toward the noose and would die at the hands of the Nazis, would say, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. The beginning of life. And ultimately... As I put there for you from Nielsen, our living hope isn't just some abstract feeling. Our living hope is Jesus himself. He is the living hope that we have. Which gets us to the last two verses in our text. And we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. How many of you would say just getting to heaven would be awesome? But the fact that on top of heaven, God, God gives us an inheritance. It was for the Israelites, that land of milk and honey buns was an inheritance for them, right? And they had trouble maintaining that. And that's, that's why I love this. And I, I can't read about an inheritance without thinking about my dad. When my dad died, the assets that really belonged to dad went to his sister rather than my, my sister and I because we grew up in a jacked up family. And, uh, and then my, his sister died the next year and so that left my grandmother uh, for us to take care of and then my grandmother died the next year and so within three years that whole side was was wiped out but what was theirs became my sister and I because there were there were no other heir we were the heirs that were there and as we see these resources it says that God has an inheritance for us that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and the, the imperishable meaning there that death and decay can never destroy it. So uh, the things that are in your attic right now that are just being destroyed by time and dust and every moth and every squirrel that gets in your attic, that the, the treasure, the inheritance that God has for us can't destroy. And I have a 64 Ford that my father gave to me, but rust fights that thing every day, right? It's a battle just to crank that behemoth. I want to, I need to get it fully running because that's what Arabella needs to drive because she will crush every Kia on the road, you know. She will be preserved and six cars will be totaled, you know. And so it is a, it is a tank, and, but, but it's rusting and it needs attention or it'll stop running. And, and we received even financial resources that, that helped to pay for seminary that helped go towards that down payment. But those decline as you use those. But we have an inheritance in heaven that never will fade, will never fade away, will never diminish, will always be preserved and incredible, and most importantly, undefiled, because my dad was not always full of integrity. And there's no doubt probably some of the things we inherited did not come through good and godly means. But what we can know from our father is not only will our sin not taint it, but it comes from the purest of a father. That it is undefiled, that it's a pure gift that he's giving. 
and that it will be preserved, right? And here's what should give you confidence. So it's not just that we, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That should cause us to sing. But he goes on and he says, kept in heaven for you. How many of you misplaced something this week? How many of you have the little things on your keychain so you'll find it? You know, I, I hear the, the um, you know, the, whatever that advertises on the radio, this little square that you can put it and it'll chirp or whatever. Yesterday, I tried to find Tara's cell phone, right? And I was using her watch. I was pinging it all over. I couldn't find it. I was calling all over. I couldn't find it. I opened up her car. I pinged her little Apple watch. Nothing, right? It took me finally getting the phone and coming back out with my phone, dialing, and then it was there, right? So the phone was actually in the car when I looked, but it didn't respond to the watch. The watch is like pinging, and the phone's like. <laughs> so it wasn't until... I did it. How many of you found trying to hold on to what you have is difficult? Whether it's assets. How many of you found trying to, to hold on to, to food? Raisin bread amazes me. Raisin bread goes bad in like minutes, not days. Like at every grocery store, my kids love raisin bread for breakfast. I'm always like, don't put this day on here. You're lying. That stuff goes bad in minutes, right? Just be honest with us. So you're trying to hold on to food so it doesn't go sell. How many of you have ever tried to hold on to your kids and found you can't, you can't preserve them? When Arabella was diagnosed with her little VSD, a little hole in her heart, I learned that there was not one more thing I could do to preserve her heartbeat, right? And that's why you should read one more time that this inheritance is not dependent on you having a square on the back of it so you can find it. It is not dependent on you holding on to it, that this inheritance is here because God is the perfect keeper of all things. Most importantly, you. That God is the perfect keeper of you. He is keeping an inheritance for us, certainly. But he is keeping us. And which gets us to the last truth. We praise God for protecting us by his power and fueling our perseverance in the faith. He says in the last part, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So none of us are going to be in heaven just because we were elect and we are evangelized, that there is a continuation of our faith that is necessary, that there's demonstration of that. But how many of you found at times it's difficult to keep the faith if left to your own resources? How many of you, have you lost all your assets and you were like Job and in one day the winds crushed the house and all 10 of your children died? How many of you think honestly it would be difficult to keep the faith? If it were left up to us, that we, we would immediately perhaps question, is God good? And of course, then when Job's health is taken away, he, he just responds, should we take only good from God and not, and not also bad? Whatever it is, I'm like, Job, you're killing me, man. You're just persevering in this. And, and here's the strength that... And here's the great promise that, that we are being preserved, guarded by his power and and I love that. I, I want to protect my children. We have a dog that barks in a deep baritone, you know, deeper than Bill Gaither singing. And, and he, he barks and he's scary and we have an alarm system and, and I want to protect it. But at some point I have to sleep, right? But God is guarding. He is always on duty. And most importantly, he's guarding your salvation. So, so I love that God doesn't say, hey, I gave you life and I've got you an inheritance, but the middle's up to you. There would be no hope in that. I walk out of here and I sit. Sometimes I don't walk out of here. I sin before I get out of here on a Sunday, right? Some of you are like, oh, he's really bad. Okay, all right. 
Let's see who you are. The great hope is not that I am going to keep him, but that he will hold me fast. And that he sustains our faith. And so what is it that he's guarding us for? Others have written and thought. It's not that he's guarding us from death. Death brings us to him. It's certainly not in this book that he's guarding us from suffering. What he's guarding us from is walking away from him. What he's guarding us from is unbelief. When all our circumstances make us want to lose faith in him. When all our circumstances make us want to question him, what he's guarding is the preserving and persevering of our faith. And you, you see that. You know, the night before, before Jesus is crucified, he, he comes to Peter and says, Hey, the devil wants to sift you, but I'm praying for you. Praying for your, your faith. Right? And we all know Peter botched it, didn't he? Uh, he messed it up really bad. We talked about that last week. That it's difficult to be, uh, uh, to, to be more blatant than to disown Jesus and to make eye contact with him. And, and, and is the reason that Peter failed because God didn't answer the prayers of Jesus? I would say that, no, it, it's not that God didn't answer that prayer of Jesus. God answered that prayer of Jesus because Peter was then convicted. And then Peter would be restored. And Peter is the one writing this letter. And if there's anyone who can tell you about God guards your faith, it's Peter. And the hope for us that, that we see here. I want to close uh, with this thought. Who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You need to know that uh, this salvation is ready now. It's ready to be revealed. But there's a reason why God is delaying. He will say later in this letter that he is not slow as some understanding, but he's delaying because he wants all to come to repentance. And, but that salvation is ready the question that, that I would have, are you ready? Are you ready for the day when that salvation is be revealed? Because when Jesus returns and that salvation is revealed, all of us that are in this room, all of us that are in the houses that were in that video from the McCords that were behind them, all of the people that live around the Baxters where they serve, all the ones that are around all the conversations he has with every Hindu and every Muslim in New Jersey, all the ones that they gave tracts to at those parades, all the ones that the Smiths serve with in Papua New Guinea, and all the people on your street and at your work, it will be revealed of one of two things. They are in Christ or they are not. And it's why we want to be gripped with gospel urgency because that salvation is ready. But I know some people that aren't. But if we're not blessing God and we're not grateful for it, they're probably not going to be drawn to it at all. And so I want to challenge you then. What, what's our call to response in light of this text? Our, our call to respond is to worship God. To worship God for what he has done for us. That it's according to his mercy. So if, if you didn't do anything to earn salvation this week, good news for you. It's according to his mercy. Not, not your merit. If you're worried about, well, have I, have I really done enough to cause myself to have spiritual life? Good news, you couldn't do that. He grants that life. It's his work and he should get the credit. And he does so through the power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And so that when we head to our own death, we do so with a living hope. To know death will not stop.
the life that we've been given. We'll only experience more of that life than we've ever known. And as we head there, we head to an inheritance that we don't deserve. It's just he's made us full children. And full children of his. And, and it's a treasure that's beyond everything that you have in your 401k or you could have in your attic or in your climate-controlled storage. Cannot be compared to the treasure, the greatest treasure, him. That's the greatest treasure. And then as you go forth from here, you don't have to go forth and worry. What if I don't keep the faith? What if, what if I... He will preserve us in that faith. So that from beginning to middle to end, our greatest confidence in salvation is in God and God alone. And what he has done for us. And so when we consider those things, how do we not worship? How do we not worship? I just want to know, Trace, did you bless God this week? Did you say a good word to God? Did you say a good word about God? Mitch is going to come and lead us in some songs of worship, and I, I hope that we will, we will do what this text is calling us to. I do want to say, if you've never responded to Christ, look for all of our elders. If you just raise your hand where you are around the room, following our service today, we would be happy to talk with you, to listen to you, to answer questions about how to give your life to Christ, what it looks like to yield. For those of you who've sat here and you're like, yeah, I know this stuff. He calls us to be born again, living hope, resurrection of Jesus. And if you're cold and desensitized, then I would beg you this morning, would you pray and ask God to break your heart and to let wash afresh over you, not what you've done for him, but what he has done for us. And the great hope that no matter what comes, no matter what trials, no matter what suffering, his sustainment, his salvation, so that one day is, we sang that we will see him as his face, as Mitch read from Valley of Vision. No clouds, being able to behold the brightness. It will be because he's clothed us in his righteousness. And we will say great things he has done. So let's start that even today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you that as we've sung that in the place of ruined sinners, you took our spot. I'm sorry if days go by in which we don't bless you. We don't say a good word. And, and it's because we don't consider what you've done for us in Jesus. Or we do not consider who you are. So I pray you would use our time. where We, we pause. We're taking these verses slow on purpose. Because we can know theologically the, the truths that are here. But we need to know them doxologically. We need to have praise that's fueled as we consider and have confidence it's not just about a prayer we prayed or, or it's not just about us having feelings of faith but it is about your great power it is about your great mercy it is about the miracle that you do that you grant spiritual life of all the things that we can create in this world we cannot create spiritual life you and you alone do that and you do it through your word and why your word is so important why we have to go forth with the gospel God, I thank you that we don't have to go forth and worry. We can go forth and worship because you will keep us. You're not just guarding the inheritance. You're guarding us by your great power. So, Father, there's much fuel for praise here. I pray it would be used. I pray we would turn these things back to you, not just in this room and not just in our life groups later today, but, Father, each day that you grant this week. 
we would not worship because we're commanded. We would worship because we're compelled. Help us to consider Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.